0: the beyond the studio podcast and you're listening to season two beyond the studio west coast edition i'm amanda adams and i'm nicole
1: muller and we're here to help you figure out the business of being an artist here we'll share honest conversations with artists makers and business experts and dive deep into the work that happens beyond the studio Support for this season comes from Southern Exposure's Alternative Exposure Grant Program in partnership with Facebook's Artist-in-Residence Program and the Andy Warhol Foundation. If you find value in listening to Beyond the Studio, we'd love to ask you to leave us a rating and review on iTunes. It's the easiest way to show us some love and to help others find the podcast. Thank you so much in advance for letting us know what you think and for supporting the show. You might hear some adult language used occasionally on the show, so please be mindful of those around you and pop in some headphones if needed.
0: When I'm not working on the podcast, I'm working on my fiber art and illustration brand, Close Call Studio. So if you want to follow along with my own journey, you can check me out on Instagram at Close Call Studio or check out my website at CloseCallStudio.com.
1: It's Nicole here, your other Beyond the Studio co host. I'm a painter, muralist, and installation artist. If you want to see more of my work and studio process, you can find me on Instagram at Nicole Marie Muller or my website, which is Nicole Marie Muller m-u-e-l-l-e-r dot com All right, on today's episode of the Beyond the Studio podcast, we are so excited to be talking to Desiree Holman from Oakland. Desiree, thanks so much for being here today. Absolutely. Would you mind just introducing yourself and your work to our listeners who might not already be familiar?
2: Yeah. My name is Desiree Holman. I'm in Oakland, California. I've been a professional interdisciplinary artist for about 20 years. My primary focus has been on multi-channel video installations and uh, interconnected live cinema experiences. This is something that's uh, more recent to the last three, four years, although I do also do traditional gallery works and the objet d'art in terms of like drawings, paintings, sculptures, and that sort of thing. I see those pieces as kind of like the pause button as a way to like focus on a frame for me. So I'm very like motion-based in terms of how I approach my practice. So the works typically exist in museums and galleries and or outdoor spaces, increasingly more public works. That is a direction I want to go in. And my main interests are around how humans define themselves and create alliances and define themselves in opposition to others. Part of the way that I access this query is really through getting a group of performers together in a kind of role-playing scenario. So I very much see myself as akin to a dungeon master in a game of
1: Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> love that description.
2: Yeah. So I kind of will hold the master narrative and create the props and then bring in these collaborators to help fill in content that is both partly scripted, but also very much invented on the spot together.
0: Art can so often be a very solitary process for people. What is it like working with other types of artists like dancers, actors and choreographers?
2: Oh, it's so joyful. You know, just in terms of, like, my internal understanding of my work and my own, like, pleasure or successes with it, that really doesn't have anything to do with being professionalized. My barometer is often around my perception of the collaboration being a really positive one for the other person. So that's something I I strive for. And... It means a lot to me. I would say for the first decade of my professional career, it was really primarily, maybe less than a decade, actually. Like first six, seven years, I was mostly just working alone with cameras, and I was playing the characters. Um... Or using inanimate objects to play other characters that were in the shape of life-size dolls or costumes that I would wear. So I kind of worked up to it and then eventually became more in the directorial role where I wasn't even behind the camera the projects got bigger. So I have worked on some productions that were 80 people strong. Wow. I love it. That honestly, though, is like occupies a very small percentage of my experience though, is a lot of these productions, they're, they're robust and they're expensive. So they require a ton of support mm-hmm. and people get paid. So, you know, you have to you have to have a robust budget. So the majority of my time, probably 98% of the time is me alone working in the studio.
0: Mm -hmm. And how are you working out these budgets? Are you proposing for grants, investors, or are you personally funding?
2: Well, it's a combination. So working with large productions started for me somewhere around 2007, or large-ish, and they've continued to grow since then. And it's really been a combination of different ways to fund it. I can share my experience. I don't have the secret formula. I'm still very much figuring it out, <laughs> um, particularly yeah. as as budgets grow it's tricky. So in early goings, like 2007, I was working with budgets that were maybe around $20,000 and I would self-fund. So I was selling work and I also worked teaching post-secondary at a community college and other and art schools in the area. And it would take me a couple years. It would take me a couple years to save up the budget. And at that point, there was also a lot of people who were volunteering who didn't necessarily get paid because I wasn't able to pay them. So I might've done trades or they might've just volunteered and I would you know feed them and take good care of them. And they were gaining experience. So I went through a couple of those. At some point along the line, I also became a parent and that really affected the way I could work because I obviously was responsible for providing for a child and providing, you know, a a home. Uh, That was comfortable and nice and had heating and was in a safe neighborhood. Mm-hmm. These sort yeah. of things that were not necessarily as, as important to me earlier on in my career. And they were things that I could sacrifice. Um, so it really shifted and I was no longer in a position where I can really self-fund the work. I mean, to some extent, that still happens, but not in such a robust manner. But what that also means is my production has slowed down considerably. Let's say the last project that I completed was a project called SoFont, and it has lots of different branches and tendrils to it. So early on, it was a large-scale performance at SFMOMA, then at... Gosh, before that actually was like gallery work at the Rocky Mountain College of Art and Design in Denver. It later came back to a museum outside of Denver where it was a live cinema experience um, at the Red Rocks, site-specific oh, at the yeah. National Park. There, it went to Hong Kong. There's a, a small-scale performance and in video installation. SFMOMA did a commission of, of the, the three-channel video work and he did a bunch of other videos with that. Anyways, on and on. And I did something at DeRosa, actually. So all of these things things... things. Oh, and also at the Museum of Contemporary Art Santa Barbara and the Museum of Contemporary Art uh, San Diego. So all of these places, I think, but not San Diego, actually had some skin in the game in terms of developing the project. So this, this project really unfolded, I would say, for four or five years. And to like get up to speed and as I would work with one institution, they might commission like costumes or something or they might commission some of the sculptural elements that were worn by the performers or the SFMOMA pro, you know they had the most skin in the game I mean they're a bigger institution and had at that point a, a larger commissioning budget to to work with me as an artist fellow so that particular project to sum this up took four or five years and a pretty robust list of institutions buying in Some of them little by little, some of it might be like, you know, a thousand dollars or a couple thousand dollars to other institutions having more robust budgets. So now I kind of I look at trying to execute a project that has a big budget and that doesn't necessarily have a monetary outcome. So it's really can be art for art's sake and there isn't there isn't gonna be a return on investment, mm-hmm. so to speak, yeah. <laughs> necessarily. I mean, hopefully one day these videos will sell out to the the video components will sell out to museums and but I'm not holding my breath for that. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to approach the project I'm working on now, the combination of working with different institutions. And their little or medium size buy-in and also using grants. So so font, I don't think was actually supported by any grants at all. I think that was all commission money, but project before that was partly commissioned by a museum and then also supported by a grant.
1: Mm -hmm. So it sounds like with some of these longer term projects, they're really evolving and snowballing as more support is gained from different groups and more institutions or individuals get involved. Do you have from the beginning a sort of end goal or output in mind and you're kind of finding the support to get there? Or is it more having the opportunity to kind of build on these ideas as more support comes about and to create different iterations of a project? I both have
2: an and goal in mind and a flexibility to grow the project in unexpected directions. Mm-hmm. So one of the bigger expenses usually for a project is actually shooting the production. And because of the, the way that I shoot, I've kind of developed this style, you know, over the last decade plus where I bring performers on a large infinity cyclorama stage that's in a, in a studio. So what that means is a, a large stage. I love to work with something that's like 20 foot tall. And like a horseshoe shape, quite large. So to, and and it has a concave curve where the wall and the floor meet. And if you you know light it, you have a light grid above. In the right way, what you can do is give the illusion of no foreground and no background. And so I have developed this style over the last decade where I paint that cyclorama stage in some really bright color, which is quite expensive. Usually will be you know over six hundred dollars worth of paint and a couple Mm -hmm. days of labor, several people to do it. But then I shoot the performers on that stage with a specialized lighting. And you you have all this space, you can do all this really dynamic camera movement. And then I key out the background and what's left is these performers with this colored halo that clings tightly around their body. It's kind of feathered on the outside so sometimes the colors lob off to the edge of the frame and then I might collage the performers and these auras or these halos around them, these colored halos in front of a bunch of different stills or just blackness so they they end up being these psychological spaces or these abstract spaces, these metaphorical spaces, non spaces really that I'm shooting in and each time the the aura is different or the halo around the body created from the painted cyclorama stage is a different color so over the course of my career I'm trying to create this rainbow of these different auras emanating from these digital bodies So you've seen green screen green, which is what I started with, but I've also worked with lavender, a hot salmon color, bright orange. Next, I'm really um, hoping to work with turquoise.
1: Yeah, wow. I've seen some of this work on your website and it's so fascinating to hear how it is actually made. I would have never thought that there's so much that goes into it. When you see something in a digital format, sometimes I think there's An assumption that it's made in that way, but to hear all of the behind the scenes that really goes into it adds so much to the work.
2: From a financial perspective, it's it's a difficult thing to commit to because it's probably the thing that makes my work most expensive to produce, but it's one of the central things that I'm most committed to.
1: Could you talk a little bit about your relationship with some of these museums or institutions that are helping to bring these projects to life? Are you getting invitations to do projects in a space and that kind of provides an opportunity to grow a project you're already working on? Or are you submitting proposals for a certain project? How do those uh, usually develop?
2: Oh, that's a great question. I think almost in every case, it's been an invitation. So I can't think of an of an example where there was an opportunity to apply to something like that. Of course, I'm applying to grants all the time. You know, and getting a very small amount of them,
0: <laughs> as it always goes. <laughs> <laughs>
1: And are they typically inviting you to come in and work on a specific project like that? Or are they usually more open-ended to give you the opportunity to realize whatever work or whatever project that you might be working on already?
2: Yeah. You know, don't know that I've ever gotten the blank check opportunity. Like, here's a check. Uh Just (laughs) how much do you want? And then just do whatever you want. Uh, Yeah. That exactly doesn't I don't know that that exactly has happened but usually the invitation is preceded by either a studio visit or some like someone heard in some cases me giving like a public talk and saw something I was working on and then the invitation was very project specific.
1: Uh, I was wondering if we could go back a little earlier in your creative career and hear about some early projects whether this was happening during grad school or just afterward and just how did things what did things look like for you then and how did they start to evolve into where you are now
2: Yeah, well, before I started grad school in 2000, I had exhibited professionally for a couple years. So I had some prior experience, but really when I graduated in 2002, I started to gain a lot more experience. My exhibition show really was a great launching point. So for my exhibition show, I had done a seven channel video installation, and that work was chosen for Big Area Now at your Babuana Center for the Arts. Bay Area oh, Now yeah. too. And from that show or that catalog, I ended up having exhibition opportunities in Miami. I started to work with the gallery in Milan from there.
1: Could you, for anyone listening who's not from the West Coast, just tell them what the Bay Area Now exhibit is? And this is at Yerba Buena Center for the Arts, um, which for yeah. anyone listening is a really wonderful institution that's right in the heart of the city. But could you tell us about that show?
2: Yeah, Bay Area Now is a triennial exhibition that is a survey of whatever curators are in charge that particular cycle version of what's happening in the Bay Area and the contemporary Mm -hmm. art scenes. At that moment, so it's kind of a snapshot. I think it tends to veer young towards young artists. I don't know if that's part of their mission or not, though. But by and large, it seems like you know a couple years out of grad school, kind of young. So a lot of artists in their twenties and early thirties seem to be featured in those shows. They're pretty great. They're um, a big marker for Bay Area artists you know, getting their names out there for, I think a lot of people in those shows, it's maybe one of the first kind of handful of their experiences of working with professional preparators and Mm -hmm. installing their work. And I think a little bit of a budget. So
1: yeah, there's one up right now, I believe until March 2019. Yeah,
2: Yeah, yeah. There is one up right now, and I can, I think it's Bay Area Seven or Bay Area Eight. I believe every cycle they also publish a catalog.
1: That's so exciting! So that is really what started to lead to some larger scale opportunities for you as well. It sounds.
2: Yeah, and that but that was all based on my thesis show, which is I went to UC Berkeley, mm-hmm. which is at um, the Berkeley Art Museum. So going back a little further, it was it was really the thesis show.
1: Hmm. And then can you describe some of the things that started happening for you after that? Was it really a natural evolution of having a show and that kind of snowballing into a show elsewhere and just being able to naturally build off of projects in that way?
2: That is accurate to say. I think the answer is yes. For that The way my practice is structured is I, I'm a project-based artist whose projects kind of cycle around certain themes, but the kind of role-playing narratives in a particular project may be quite different from one to another. But they're still looking at these questions of like social hierarchies and equality and belonging, uh, alliances and opposition. For me, when I think about my career, I really think of it as being more driven by the kind of new chapter that I'm on. So <laughs> really like working on something for a couple years and then moving on to the next project then for a couple years. So hopefully each project has a long and robust life.
0: Do you find that one project leads into the next almost chronologically, or do you give each project its set time and then move on to the next without any sense of overlapping or connection? Or do you ever revisit or rework older projects?
2: Over the last couple of years, I've begun to see my OVRA pretty specifically from the last like 12 years as being projects that I don't love to think of as chapters because in some ways it implies Mm -hmm. that you're turning the page and that page is no longer open. So Mm -hmm. I've seen them now more as like pie chart or something or spokes on a wheel that are able to be re-entered and some of the, the lines are bleeding. I think there is a way for me to uniquely present something as a body of work, but elements of out of one body of the wor- of work are now starting to bleed into other elements. And now they're starting to be created in, in a way that I can come back to them five years later, you know, and have another project in between. But thematically, in terms of the research, some pretty research-oriented art. Artist, there will really be the seeds planted sometimes many years before I create something. So, for example, in 2007, I did this this project called Troglodyte, and when I did this project, I was looking at a lot of ethology videos, which is Uh, basically primatologists usually looking at primate behavior or animal behavior in their natural habitat. So, and I was reading evolutionary psychology, this sort of thing, and social theories around our imagination when it comes to to the great apes and our relationship projections of human behavior onto them. So in this particular project, troglodyte, I had a group of performers dress up in these handmade chimpanzee suits and they, you know, they do things that are, you know, native to both chimp culture and human culture, like reciprocal altruism, like practicing hierarchy and dominance, these sort of things, of uh, violence and care. At that time, so that was in 2007, I started to think about this other human projection of like the extraterrestrial as this other kind of bipedial animal that relates to the human body. So I had started to do like little early research, like where in philosophy is the extraterrestrial mentioned. And that led me to like starting to read case studies of like abductees and kind of understanding the fantasy and then reading over the years, reading like how accounts, Western primarily accounts of, um, of abductees matter mapped onto social movements and how the figuration of the alien changed so like in the states the 1960s there was one really famous case i absolutely am not concerned with the veracity of these i'm more interested in you know the 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 imagination of it mm-hmm. the alien kind of goes from this very white tall blonde hair blue eyed but just a little bit bigger than a regular human, extraterrestrial, so it's very Norse, like, god mm-hmm. or goddess looking, to this, like, gray-skinned figure that that eventually, like, becomes, like, has vestigial ethnic features, like, the nose recedes, it doesn't have hair, it gets a bigger head, the eyes get bigger, every, everything else, it, like, looks like it morphs beyond sexual dimorphism, there's, like, no longer a gendered body, all these things, and you can kind of map these around, like, social rights and, like, women's mm-hmm. rights and stuff like this, have this imagination of this character. And also got interested in like accounts of fear of colonization or fear of the other and how it relates to extraterrestrials. So, anyways, I saw these as kind of like bookends. One this human projection onto apes and our behavior, and then this other human projection onto extraterrestrials because why are they bipedial and kind of look like humanoid? Why isn't it vapor? Right. You mm-hmm. know, like obviously we have we have some interest in seeing ourselves. So font was kind of born of that research, but I didn't execute so font. I didn't start executing so font till 2011 so I had started to do a little bit of the research and the thinking when I was working on troglodyte and doing that early research which I would say probably started in 2004 and another project heterotopias versus the magic window the magic window which was 2005 I think I may be messing up my dates actually I got a, a group of people to come in and and play act role play with masks and 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 clothing the main characters from the fictional TV family from Roseanne and also the fictional TV family from the Cosby show. So this is in 2005. Amazing that it's still so, so relevant.
0: Yeah. They, uh, they briefly brought back Roseanne until she showed her true colors and obviously, we've been seeing a lot of Bill Cosby in the news, so that's pretty interesting.
2: I think some version of Roseanne is still with us, is still actively being produced, but just without Roseanne Barr. I think it's called the Connors. But so that project really looked at like how fictional narratives on television played out, and what our kind of cultural imagination is, and what it sort of as it became syndicated globally, what it told other people about these particular identities in America. Then heterotopias, which also brought in performers to play their own imagination of these fictional identities, but that were existed from the computer. So they they became dynamic ways of creating these cultural fictions and identities so I also see those as bookends one being a more kind of passive viewer in the television and that being the dominant media of like the 80s to thinking more about the interactivity and the narratives that are more contemporary.
1: Mm -hmm. It's so interesting to hear you talk about your practice and your process over time and all the different manifestations of these ideas and I think it's something that I realize again and again in talking with artists which is so exciting, and a little bit of like what we're trying to to highlight and talk about on the kind of career professional end as well is that these things are never so linear, and that there are cycles. And I think what you described, um, some of your ideas being like a a web or having a lot of different tendrils, that seems more descriptive to me of artists' lives and and career paths as well, that, you know, a lot of times it's all of these things happening simultaneously or things that you might return to that inform other things and weaving in and out as opposed to a kind of like sequential chronology of this happened and then this happened. And so it makes it kind of hard to talk about sometimes because I think that we process things in that way or I don't know it's like it's interesting that even as a video artist I'm sure you're always thinking about work that is time-based and as someone who works in performance and all these things that we're sort of used to to seeing things play out in a certain way from like having a beginning middle end but but that's really not how life or the world works I was also interested to ask you about some of your experiences um, because you have shown in galleries and worked with larger institutions like museums both locally and also abroad if you could speak to what the working relationships have been like or maybe some of the differences uh, between planning for a project or show that is all the way across the world versus working in say more of a gallery setting locally
2: Well my most recent experience with working internationally was doing a project in Hong Kong at A1 space in the Kowloon district of Hong Kong. And it was an auxiliary program for um, Art Basel Hong Kong. And it was at a project space, which... I think is relatively unique for Hong Kong, which is a very expensive city per square foot. So really, I think commercial galleries dominate the landscape kind of by the nature of the uh, cost per square foot there and the living cost. The business aspect is quite important for survival. And, and that particular experience was, I feel like happened at the right time in my career. I I had really had enough experience with working with a huge group of people where maybe the museum or the the institution acted as a producer right? Because it was casting all children, by the way, in a live performance. It was a gallery show that had a three-channel video installation, and it was a group show, too. And then Mm -hmm. I did a live performance component with a group of children. So that was really awesome. I finally feel like I I just had the skills to work across language and cultural barriers, right? And to work with really kind of sensitive area, which is kids, and a place where I didn't know the, the laws of the land. And be able also, so to direct them through Skype or imparting the responsibility on some to somebody else or it could be really thorough and know how to get people in their body and moving to do the things that were required for the project and all the while listening to their voices and what was comfortable for them and listening to their parents' voices and responding you know, appropriately mm-hmm. That was a unique experience and a huge success, one I really hope to do, be able to do more. And and like I said, it happened at the right time. I had enough experience that I could do something like that without, you know, when it was happened very easily. Mm -hmm. But in terms of the, you know, the institutional aspect, which I think you're probably more interested in, um... I th- the main differences I see have to do with the level of budget and and the mm-hmm. experience with executing a big project. So budget will be dependent on an institution and understanding. For me, it's, like, a matter of, like, really understanding what you can do with a budget. If you know how to handle that money to get what you want, right, or how to, like, create the project so it fits the budget and the capabilities of the institution. So I've talked about SF MOMA a lot. They are just, you know, that's a really big institution with a lot of hands. So they can get people, like, that might be on their payroll to help produce a project, Mm-hmm. or other people that can be temporary, and it doesn't come out of your budget, which is amazing. And other institutions, right. like the institution I worked with in Hong Kong, A1 Space, they're really like a shoestring institution. There was a commission fee and a small budget, but uh, it wasn't you know, super robust at all. So for me, that's the big difference is, like, is capability, is yeah. what they can do and adjusting appropriately and also assessing there's sometimes when one might need to say no like I can't execute what you would like me to execute for x dollars
1: mhm did you feel like that was true working with Asaf Moma back in you had received a SECA award in 2008 and then more recently were a fellow in the film and performance department did you have the same type of institutional support for each of those shows, or was that a very different experience as well?
2: Very different experience. So the work that came for the Sika show uh, had already been created and paid for. I I paid for that work out of pocket and Mm -hmm. the creation of all of that work. There was no stipend involved. There was no honorarium. They bought two drawings, which was great from that. But that's all that was involved in terms of... Mm -hmm their monetary investment i mean of course they made a catalog and there was great pr from that exhibition and you know Obviously, they have a stellar install crew, which is everything, particularly when you're working with a large scale installation and a tech driven installation, because mm-hmm. it just can't happen without that. But later working with uh, Dr. Frank Schmigel, when he was at SFM on the film and performance department, that was an entirely different beast because that was actually a commission for new work.
1: Mm hmm.
0: This is a total segue, um, but I know you're a mother in addition to being an artist, Mm -hmm. and neither Nicole nor I are mothers, but I know we definitely have listeners who are. Would you mind talking about how you manage your time between being an active artist and being a present parent?
2: Yeah, it's such a joy. I'm I'm so grateful that I've been able to become uh, a parent and... I have a seven and a half year old child. I think I would just like to go back even more to talk a little bit about the journey. Something that I like about your mission is kind of uncovering, how did you do this? How did someone get Mm -hmm. there? You know, and just say, first of all, the truth is that it's financially difficult and like sometimes really, really difficult. There are many times in in my career, I've been like, oh my gosh, can I find something different to do that makes money? And (laughs) um, (laughs) hopefully, I'm over that now, that phase as I'm a middle aged. Person, and I've been making art for a while, and it just seems like it's not going away. So I'm going to stay really positive about Mm -hmm. it. I've never could find anything else that I could even remotely be this passionate about. So I feel it's a great privilege to do this. And there has been, I think, a lot of sacrifice in order to do that. So I'm going to tell you guys a a little bit about my journey with the caveat that it's not necessarily a formula for success. And I don't really, and I want to hear other people's stories. I don't know how people do it generally. Mine is very unique and I think it has to do with very unique circumstances coming together. Mm Mm-hmm. My practical journey went something like this. Uh, let's see. I, when I first went to college, which is where contemporary art and the idea, you know, the idea that this is what. Going to be my reason d'etre. This was going to be my central focus in life, really kind of crystallized um, as a college student. I'd gone to college for three semesters straight from high school and then dropped out for like a year and went back. And I was in the position, you know, I was younger than 24 at that time. And I was in the position where I, you know, was 100% financially independent. And applying for the FAFSA, the free aid for financial, the free form for financial aid when I was in school, you had to at that time. I'm not sure if it's the same, but you had to declare your parents' income until you were 24. And even if you were 100% financially hmm. independent, they would consider your parents' income. So, it is single mom who actually was on government assistance. So, which generally, I mean, is not an awesome thing to to be poor, but this is one of the times where it like it actually in the long run was an amazing boon for me. Because what that meant was when I got all my loans and the scholarship money and the Pell grants and stuff, all of my loans were subsidized. So that means whenever they, because of my mom's income and my, my income, you know, as a student, I didn't make very much money. Subsidized means that whenever they were on pause, interest wouldn't be accrued. So- Anyways, this is a really important element of kind of my ascension, or I mean, if you want to call it an ascension, an ability to keep moving forward. Yeah. Was this like like this subsidized loan? So, and then I went to grad school. I took a year off in between and I worked. I went to grad school, graduated in, in 2002. I got a, a a bunch of money from UC Berkeley when I went. I did still get some some subsidized loans in that time, but there were very few. But I think because of the financial background and just based on my portfolio getting um award money. I don't remember what my total loan debt was when I graduated, but it it wasn't crazy. It was, you know, like less than $60,000. So, which mm-hmm. is actually kind of crazy, but a lot of people have bigger student debt. Oh gosh,
1: so relative today, but it's yeah, so relative. But, but also
2: considering where, like, you know, I was walking into a career where I might not be making any money at all. or it might just be like the studio might just be even. So maybe enough just to like produce the work and there would be not a lot of profit. So when I graduated here's what happened this is like why I think it's a very individual story I got an apartment in that was handed down from a friend in a like partly industrial at the time also very high crime area that was huge. The bathtub was in the backyard. There were like animals living in the wall. It was like kind of disgusting. Wow. Oh my God. <laughs> and I lived there for a long time and I had a huge studio. The rent was $800. It was a three bedroom, so I could rent out part of it and have this huge studio. So my overhead was really, really low. Before I graduated with my master's, like two weeks before I got hired, kind of on a whim because someone left suddenly to teach at a community college in the area. So this, this was in 2002. This is before California community colleges became more expensive for each credit. So I had a teaching job. Somehow they didn't check on me too much over the summer. They were like, great, we'll hire you in the fall. And that job went on for eight years. <laughs> and, you know, eventually at first it was a little bit of a hot mess, but got it together. And I think I was pretty, pretty good at my job. Through that job, I was you know i was i think i was teaching two classes a semester two or three so it would work like two days a week and i had low overhead and i had health insurance so I had plenty of time to make work. I really didn't do anything else outside of work, or very little of other things. I really just focused on making art all the time. Like, would wake mm-hmm. up, just start making art. Like, in my studio was right there, Sometimes I didn't even get dressed, and I would just, like, be in my studio all day until I, you know, went to bed at night. So that was a common day for me. But what I did was I would enroll in classes at the community college when the credits, I think they were, like, $11 a credit or something. So it was, like... Wow no big deal. And because I had subsidized loans, I would enroll up to 12 credits, take these classes. Sometimes I would retake classes or a piece of cake for me, or it's something I'd just be interested in. I love taking classes, love going to school. So it was quite fun for me. And there would also be things that would like support a project I was working on. But the subsidized loans would then the interest would be clicked off because I could pause my loan while I was in school and this was the ah, strategy so you were and it was student, still working. Technically. I was so this is all legit, but what then? What I would do would just pay off my student loans, and I had low overhead. I tried to spend as little amount of money as I could. Oh yeah, I just paid off the principal. So
0: good for you! I paid that's
2: off so my student smart. loans. Just <laughs> something I'm really proud of.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. I know I've spoken to friends whose loan debts are so insane that they're accruing yeah. more interest every month than they're even able to pay. So it's an ever-growing debt, and I don't even understand how they're supposed to be able to get out of it. But it's amazing that you were able to be so strategic about your loans and finding a way to make it work for you. The student loan debt situation in this country is insane and absolutely going to lead to some bigger problems.
2: Yeah, it's tough. Um, but in my case, I feel really lucky that it worked out really well for me. I know that's not the same for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, so part of that was that, you know, I, I was able to keep my expenses low. I mean, I still live in the Bay Area. I live in, in Oakland. The cost of living has gone up radically. So I think this kind of formula would would be harder to execute because it would be hard to find that rent and a large studio space at the same time. But mm-hmm. maybe. You might be able to. But anyways, a little a little difficult. So now I'm in someplace different. You know, I have a seven and a half year old. I live a pretty middle class life. I'm a homeowner in Oakland. Uh, So I think to be totally transparent about that, that would not happen if I were not married to somebody who has a job that pays them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, if that were not the case, I don't, my personal choice would have, would not have been to have become a mother. I would not have had a child because I could not provide a stable home for a child financially. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, we just got lucky. We bought a house at the right time when the market wasn't as super crazy and bought a house in a neighborhood that got nicer, that had a studio in the back. So mm-hmm. yeah so that's like kind of been my formula for success and I'll also say that you know the first i don't know 7 years or so of my marriage, uh, 6 7 years of my marriage I was teaching you know at all, all as adjunct professor at you know several of the schools in the bigger area and then after I became a mom at some point it was you know working as an adjunct professor it was costing me so much to have childcare to go work, and you don't get paid that great as an adjunct professor. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, it's okay, and it worked as a single person actually, especially when I worked at the community college, which I would get paid better at than working at an art school or university nearby mm. um, that had, you know, had health insurance and had a retirement. Just starting to do the math, it didn't really square. To like think about the cost of childcare, which is here is probably most places is just it's very high. So I would be Mm -hmm. losing money if I were to take a job teaching a class at Stanford or SFAI or CCA. So after a couple years of doing that, I kind of tapered that down and realized it would make more money just working in my studio and being the lead parent. So Mm -hmm. It made more sense to negotiate like, oh, I'm what a seamless in our lives is for me to take care of our child primarily and be a housewife and then execute my studio practice while now my my son is old enough that he's in school. So I have, you know, my daily schedule really looks like, you know, I, I get up at five something in the morning and I'm getting, you know, do my things, get my child to school and then I'm back in my studio usually by 8 30 and then I'm Mm -hmm. working till 2 30 or 3 30 depending on on what's happening with my son's school and then I'm with my son and I'm making dinner so my other job is really housewife Mm
1: -hmm. and that's
2: how it works that's how it's worked for me and I'm really grateful for that and it's also been really tricky sometimes sometimes it's really quite difficult.
0: I really appreciate your honesty with that because I think oftentimes we get this highlight reel Mm -hmm. of what other artists are doing and it looks so easy like oh look at you in your studio with your baby on your hip and you're just painting away so productively in peace but the reality is that it's very hard and I can't even imagine how people do it with children much less alone or alone with children. I know for me without the support of my partner I don't know where I'd be now at all. (laughs) And granted, he's not supporting me financially so much uh, because we're both creatives trying to make our own lives and careers work, but uh, we split the labor of the home and that alone is such a major game changer for me. And it really helps us to be able to keep making our own work.
1: Yeah, yeah. And also just knowing your situation, it seems like a theme here is that you really were able to... You know, recognize what would work, what wouldn't, make changes accordingly, see, you know, potential in certain things like having these subsidized loans, enabling you to take classes and just being really smart about all those decisions so that, you know, whatever your circumstances are, whatever situation you might find yourself in, you're sort of making the right moves for yourself at that time to set your life up in a way that you, you know, can do the things that you want to do and that you're taking care of yourself and or your family if that's part of the equation. But it is always interesting to hear other people's stories because I think, like you said, there's no secret formula and and maybe there is no such thing as just a common, you know, a typical story. I think everyone's circumstances are so individualized, Um, but there's so much to be gained from just hearing from others and that level of of honesty about how they are making it work. So yeah, we, we do really appreciate you sharing that. Absolutely. Do you
0: have any advice or experiences that you've had or would give that helps you get through your own work and life? I don't know if
2: this advice works for everyone. This the advice that I will share, but it, it works for me. And I think it might work for some others. I really try to keep in focus That this is not about, I didn't choose this for external recognition. So even in times of silence and working in obscurity day after day, month after month, sometimes maybe even for more than a year at a time, that I'm not doing this because I want name recognition or I'm not doing this for the pedigree of my resume There's a deeper reason why I chose this life and I am quite capable, I would be capable of turning my life in another direction and getting a a regular job. But I'm still choosing to do this and I think everybody has their reasons, but for me those reasons are profound and I try to, as much as I can, stay connected to that that this isn't about external recognition. Like that's great when those things happen and there are things that happen that propel my career farther and I welcome those things and want those things and no more of those things will happen. But I don't let my career and the worth of my work be defined by those things. So that includes letting my ego get out of proportion because something exciting happened or out of proportion the other direction like injured because I wasn't in a show that I wanted to be in or yeah whatever for me the kind of secret of success for me like in terms of keeping the right attitude and focus is like why are you doing this and stay connected to that initial impulse that this is a lifestyle job, so to speak. And maybe even to call it a job might be slightly erroneous. <laughs> There's a deeper pull that is way bigger than making
0: money.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Or
0: professionalism.
1: I think that actually is very universal.
0: Yeah, it's so easy to wrap your worth or self-esteem with your level of success or experience, and I know I get wrapped up in the overwhelming feeling of failure if I don't get into a show I was expecting to participate in or I don't do as well as I'd hoped. It's easy to go straight into, well, I suck, headspace. So I relate to you with this cause I am not in it for fame or money, but I think a lot of us feel that way and I wanna make the work that matters to me and make a life for myself.
1: I was just- just going to ask Desiree where people can find your work where they can follow you or uh, see your work either in person or online
2: yeah well so there are a couple shows that are in the works one is in a museum in Chicago that will happen early next year and I'm on Instagram at Desiree Arlette Holman and you can also see a pretty robust archive of my work on my website which is DesireeHolman.com
0: perfect and we'll link everything in our show notes was there anything else that you wanted to share
2: great oh, I think it's a great conversation I really appreciate
0: it thank you so much for coming on to the show and being so honest and vulnerable about everything and thank you so much for making your work
1: thank you so much for taking the time a pleasure yeah, yeah absolutely good luck to you both thank you thank you Amanda thank you Nicole thank you so much Desiree that's it for this episode of the beyond the studio podcast you can find show notes references and a brief summary of the episode over at our website beyond the studio while you're there be sure to sign up for our mailing list to find out about upcoming guests special announcements and podcast giveaways If you're listening to this episode via iTunes,
0: we'd love to ask you to give us a rating and a review, because it really makes a big difference. The more reviews we get, the more people we can connect with, and the more we connect, the better we get. And we're trying to get real good here.
2: When you guys FaceTime with people or Skype, isn't it hard not to just stare at yourself the whole time? Or is that just (laughs) me?
0: No, I end up staring at myself a lot, and I'm like, is this how I look when I talk? Okay. (laughs) Sure, sure. Wow, I, that's a face I make a lot, and I didn't know it looked quite like that. Like, you just, it's hard
1: not to look at yourself. Yeah, I try and set it so that I'm the smallest icon. You know how you can, yeah. like, adjust if someone's talking or if it's always split screen or however you want it to lay out. So I just make it so that I'm super tiny to try and prevent myself from getting distracted.